Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, I know I told you we were going to talk about green flags and relationships and that one is coming, but there has been a whole bunch of stuff happening in the LDS church and I feel like we need to talk about it this week. Kevin and I have been talking about it back and forth. We have lots of big feelings about it and so I've brought my husband, Kevin Hales. He's a licensed professional counselor I've brought him on. He's a mandated reporter. We have all kinds of feelings and thoughts about what's going on with the Associated Press article by Mike Resendez that talks about child sexual abuse in the Mormon church. So if that is triggering for you, please skip this podcast. Take care of yourself if you are not ready to talk about sexual abuse, if you're not ready to talk about ways in which religion provides a safe haven for perpetrators, if you're not ready to um, have that discussion, if it's going to bring up trauma for you that you're not ready to confront, um, please listen to yourself and skip this podcast. Um, We are not going to be digging into the details of the legalities of everything. Mormon Stories has done hours of information about the hotline that bishops call whenever there are abuse victims and whether that is effective or not effective. They've just done a podcast, I think, a week ago where they interviewed hundreds of victims with their experience within the Mormon church, when bishops or ecclesiastical leaders knew about their abuse and how they responded. So if that's something you would like to go listen to, please head over to Mormon Stories. Radio Free Mormon and Bill Rill also did a podcast episode um, about the legalities of church authorities and bishops and stake presidents letting police know whenever there is abuse happening. So all of that has been covered ad nauseum. However, there was an article that came out in the Salt Lake Tribune. um, When was that? Yesterday? I think it was just yesterday. So on Friday, so Friday, August the 26th, there was an article that came out in the Salt Lake Tribune by Stuart C. Reed. He is a former Utah Republican senator. He's been an LDS bishop twice. He was an army chaplain for several years, and he said, I think, that he's been in charge of six different congregations. So he's coming at this as an LDS ecclesiastical leader and really said a lot of disturbing things out loud. And Kevin and I are just going to kind of go through that article and talk about things that come up. He and I were talking yesterday, and I thought to myself, I think this is a discussion 
we need to have with more people. And you being a licensed professional counselor, I thought this would be a great chance. So is there anything you want to say before we get started with this article that comes to mind? I guess, I mean, and I'll probably say this several more times as we record this, but I just, I was just blown away by how, how immersed in the, the yes man culture this guy was, you know, how, Mm. how I just couldn't believe some of the things he was saying. Just, yeah. just, just, just really could not believe some of the things he was saying in the article. And and I just, it was, it was disturbing. It was troubling on so many levels. And, and then we wonder why so much abuse continues to be hidden and, and, and perpetuated, uh, you know, decade after decade. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I thought it was a parody at first. Like you sent that to me and we were talking about it from two different rooms And as you were quoting things, I was like, there's no way this could be real. Like, there's no way someone can believe some of the things he's saying and believe that that's healthy. And then I actually went to this this website, actually, um, after reading the article, which was very real, by the way. um, There was a CIS.org report on the Mormon church and illegal immigration. And they quoted Stuart Reed back when he was a senator. And he said, if the church takes a position on a public policy issue contrary to popular sentiment, as a public official, I have two choices. Either I follow the will of the people and be popular, or I follow my faith leaders making or risking the rejection of the voters. When faced with this dilemma, It's my guiding principle. This is his personal guiding principle that devoted Mormons involved in politics should always choose to follow their faith leaders, no matter their own personal views or the political consequences. And I think that tells us a lot about where he's at with his public voice. Or or anyone for that matter who who's you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of their respective cult. You know, for this guy, it's Mormonism. For you know, a Christian or a Jehovah's Witness or anyone else, the, this is often the mentality. It's blind obedience at, at at its worst. Yeah, where where God's law is above anyone else's law or rule, and and this is used as justification for so many atrocities throughout the history of mankind. Yeah. So we've got a person who in this case, is actually trained as an ecclesiastical leader, which doesn't happen very often in the LDS church because of his years as a chaplain. He has a master's degree in psychology, and I can't fully tell what his master's of education was in. So he has an MED from BYU. Um, I have done a lot of research on this guy. There's there's not a lot of information about him publicly, but he has an MED from BYU, and I went back to the years that I would assume that he went to school because I can't even find his age online. Um, And the MED department did include psychology at the time. So he could have a psychological degree or he could just have an education degree, like a church education degree on like Mormon apologetics. Right. So um, I don't know what the requirements of the military were at the time, but we've got somebody who's at least 
trained and has operated in a paid position as clergy, which doesn't happen very often in the LDS church, saying the things that we're about to read in this article. So I think that that's important to point out because usually in the LDS church, it's your local dentist, that's your ecclesiastical leader, or your local plumber or engineer, and they don't have any formal training in matters of spirituality, nor in matters that most ecclesiastical leaders are at least trained in, which is some sort of spiritual counseling. So they have none of that training. And this guy would have at least had some, you would hope, of that training, right? Right. So I think that that's important to recognize because this is not just coming from your local dentist. Um, This is coming from somebody who has worked very closely as a legislator as a legislator with the brethren um, and has guided at least two congregations um, as a bishop and a few more congregations as an army chaplain. So let's just go ahead and start with the title because that alone. (laughs) The fact that he even starts the, the the whole title starts with his name. It's I I actually found that ridiculous to, to begin with that. The, the the name of this article is my name, and then what comes after that? <laughs> yeah, it's Stuart C. Reed, and then there's a colon, and it says privacy of the confessional is a God given right. And you know, you study relationships and like he- like healthy relationships and feeling safe in your relationships is kind of your forte. And lately, I've been all about studying unhealthy relationships, particularly narcissistic relationships and abusive relationships. What stands out to you about that title? Well, again, so I was I was startled initially just to see that he starts with his own name as if as if that's the most important thing to take away from this. But but then just I don't know, like as I as I'm looking at this title, the 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 phrase God given right is is so many people assume that to have some universal meaning and and significance and it doesn't it there are so many different gods that people worship and there are so many different interpretations of what is quote unquote a god given whatever and so so i mean right off the bat we're we're in we have little to no foundation to build off of because he's he's speaking as if this is a a universally accepted idea that there are god-given blanks whatever you want to call it and and that and 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 that's going to be used as a trump card because no matter what um anyone else says you know you can always you can always fall back on, well, this is in the Bible, or this is what God says, or this is a God-given right or whatever. And, and there's no foundation there, even though that's the, what it feels like. So I don't know, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm seeing initially. Yeah, no, I think just in the title for me, coming from my lens of study for the past six months, like I see so much narcissism just in that initial thing. Not only is he labeling it after his name, mm-hmm. um, which what does that have to do with confessionals and and God-given rights, right? But the idea of a God-given right is like entitlement. 
as, as far as it can be taken to say that God has given me these rights and so they can't be taken away. Like I should be entitled to the privacy of a confessional, even if children are being hurt, even if spouses are being abused, even if, you know, someone else is being hurt, that a penitent has the God-given right to be able to confess whatever they want to confess and keep it private just feels like so much entitlement to me. Well, another way of of saying this is it is a God-given right for a child to be abused and molested and mm. for no consequences to occur. Ouch. Yeah, you're that's right. The, the, that's the flip side of that coin. That's the exact we're saying the exact same thing just in a, you know, from the the victim's perspective. Well, and he actually kind of gets into that in this article. That's right. why I thought it was a sick parody at first, because I was like, there is no way someone can say that the rights of a church to have privacy trump the right of a child to have a safe atmosphere to grow up in. There's no way someone can actually think that. And actually, yes, there is a way that someone can think that. So it says, if religious leaders are forced to report what they hear in private, abusers won't admit their crimes. Just thoughts about that well i mean we're gonna get into more of that in his in the article so i i would say let's just keep going let's just hop in Stuart c reed Stuart c reed and and i don't know if that's uh in mormonism that is a very common thing for the highest of the leaders to always use a middle initial and and i don't know where that comes comes from but you always hear the mormon leaders referred to as Russell M. Ballard, Russell uh, M. Nelson, or sorry, Russell M. Nelson, or M. Russell Ballard, or you know, uh, whatever. I, I, I'm, it's, it's. I don't know. It, it, there's so, so just seeing that middle initial C, it's. I, I almost think there's like an air of elitism that attention. Yeah, that 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 shows. Oh, you know, I'm, you know, Kevin W. Hells, you know, as opposed to just being a normal person with a, you know, just using your first and last name. Well, and that's only for men, because if you're a woman, you have to like give your father's name and your husband's name. So I would be Terry Aranda Hales. I have to acknowledge my family of parentage, as well as the fact that I'm your property. If I'm going to claim any sort of, you know, intelligence or content creation out in the world. And I did for a long time. Actually, anytime I created something, I was Terry Aranda Hales. And now I'm just Terry Hales because that's that's how we roll. All right. So well, you- well, one thing to keep. So as we read this first paragraph, this is basically him establishing his authority over anyone else out there that disagrees with him. Yeah, that's basically the gist of this of this this of this uh, paragraph. OK, do you want to read it? Having presided over and pastored six congregations, and I almost wonder if he's using that word pastor as a as a way to broaden his reach. Because, Absolutely. Because in Mormonism, you never use the word pastor. You you don't say you pastor over, you know, preside and lead and and dominate. So having presided over and pastored six congregations. Two as a bishop for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and four as an active duty army chaplain. It is clear to me that the sinner slash perpetrator, child abuse victims, and society generally are better off when the confessional is protected by the government as the free exercise of religions 
God-given right. Okay, so pause there. What stands out to you? Well, again, like I just said, he's 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 bragging about how knowledgeable and how experienced and how wise he is. And and so where my mind goes as a therapist is I'm always trying to to remind people that a lot of the power people have over us is what we give to them. And so this is a very tempting paragraph to read and go, oh, subconsciously we're thinking, I need to listen to what he's going to say. I need to. And if I have any disagreements or if I look at this differently, we're off, we're probably going to feel shame or, or, or wrong or bad about that because well, look at this guy. He has so much life experience, you know, in this, this realm. And so it's a, it's a way that abusive leaders use to cut down, you know, your self-confidence and self-worth as a, as a human being. Yeah. Well, and right here too, like, I, I feel like there's almost this feeling of I've, I've done this more than you. So I know more than you kind of like what you were saying. And he's even saying, I know more than people in the LDS church, because not only have I presided over LDS congregations, but pastored here is a very intentional word because as a chaplain, he would have been part, like he would have held services for congregations that weren't necessarily LDS. Mm -hmm. And he would have had to keep that non-denominational. Mm -hmm. And so, because you looked into being a chaplain for a while, which yeah. is how you became a therapist. Right. Um, so this man like is saying, I don't just have LDS experience. I have a broader ecclesiastical experience. And across the board, it is clear to me, that wording right there, it's clear to me that society, like everybody involved, the center perpetrator, and I think it's so interesting that he uses that slash there with center perpetrator because center, I think, brings up a lot of empathy for us because all of us are centers. I think it it brings up a lot of empathy to detract from the next group of people, which is child abuse victims. Which you basically kind of overlook. It's It's thrown in the middle there. Yeah, it's thrown in the middle of center perpetrator and then society generally. He says all of these people across the board are better off when the confessional is protected by the government as the free exercise. And then again, we get into this entitlement, religion's God-given right. And what I want to know, whenever I see things like it's clear to me and generally are better, I want research. Give me the research. Where is the research that says people are better off when abusers are free to Hide. Hide in religion, which let me go to my notes here really quick. Um, there's actually a whole group of people, the Gunderson National Child Protection Training Center in Winona, Minnesota. Their um, director, Victor Veith, he says, in one study, 93% of convicted sex offenders describe themselves as religious. So 93% of the people who have been convicted of sex offenses describe themselves as religious. And he goes on further in the article to say church going. So these aren't people that are just watching the 700 club saying I'm religious because I watch TV evangelists. These are people that are sitting in the pews. So 93% of those people are sitting in the pews and they have this priest penitent privilege. And if 
there is no mandatory reporting, then 93% of sex offenders are protected. And how many child abuse victims does that translate into? Right. How many domestic abuse victims does that translate into? And then he even goes on to say, many sexual predators consider churches as safe havens with trusting, forgiving adults and easy access to children. So sexual predators consider themselves religious because, you know, we've been talking about narcissism. It gives them this mask of I'm a good person because in general, in America, the um, it's changing. But the underlying belief is if you go to church, you're a good person. Yeah. 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 If somebody hears <clears throat> you're an atheist or a Muslim or something different from Christianity, there's an immediate suspicion and assumption that you are evil or untrustworthy or any number of other things. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, what, what was it? I think it was like a survey or something done a few years ago that, um, most Christians view atheists as being even more untrustworthy than a rapist a rapist or, yeah. or sexual abuser or something like that right which is just mind-blowing but um but, but if, if you're a rapist or a sex abuser that believes in god then you know immediately you're much more trustworthy than than someone who doesn't yeah even though it's that that naivete that predators prey off of. They know if they go to church and they sit their butt in the pew every single week, and if they're going to the priest or the bishop or, you know, the pastor, and they are admitting at least part of their abuse, first of all, they're able to, what is that word? I always mispronounce it. A-S-S-U-A-G-E. Assuage, I think, I think is how you, yeah, yeah. assuage, I think. I think I think that's how you pronounce it, but yeah. To do that, yeah, to their conscience and feel like, okay, I'm not as bad of a person, and my slate is wiped clean for the week, and they can go home and abuse people every day of the week, and come back and have another confessional, feel good about themselves, have a clear conscience, and when these priests are not reporting victims, like we're multiplying victims, we're not just doing what was in the AP article where the victim continued to be abused for seven years. We're doing what else was also in the article where there were new victims. Her younger sister began to be abused because the bishop didn't report. And so, and what blows my mind is the bishop was a physician who is a mandatory reporter, if I'm not mistaken, right? I believe so. Yeah. 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 So the church's hotline, like his role as bishop, even trumped his role as a doctor in that moment. And he did not report, which like, I'm sorry, I am fired up about this. You can hear that I'm fired up about this. I, this, this pisses me off because like, I think the Bible makes it really clear. Like if you're going to come from this place of we believe the Bible we are trying to follow Jesus. I think Jesus made it very clear that protecting children was one of his top priorities. You know, he talks about hanging a millstone around people's neck and drowning them in, at the bottom of the ocean if they harm children. So right. this just like, ugh. well, and, and as we're talking about this, I can't help but think about 
that movie uh, called The Devil All the Time with Tom Holland. Do you remember mm. that one? And and it's on Netflix if anyone wants to watch it. But it's it's it, it, there's a couple of really disturbing examples of again religious abuse happening in in that movie. One of which is you know sexual you know predatory you know pastor you know um, and it's again there's so much protection that is and has been afforded to them uh, yeah. over the decades and it's and it's really disturbing and and not okay yeah well and i think the reason we're using things like god given right is christianity in particular in the united states has held an amount of extraordinary privilege right in in the us they've held privilege in making our laws creating our education system um they they've held such a privilege with being able to talk to lawmakers today um they even influence business that when we're starting to call them out they're they're doing they're doing what a narcissist would do which is no this is my right mm-hmm. i deserve this because historically i've had this privilege it's my right and i think so often in the us we confuse privilege with right well, there was that quote we we stumbled upon a, uh, several months ago, where it says, "When you are in a when you are in a position of privilege, equality feels like oppression." Oh, I forgot about that quote. You're right. And so, yes, you're right. When you are used to the standard, you know, that's I mean, go back to the civil rights days, for example, and the whites are used to uh, having a certain level of privilege, and 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 so when when the country tries to right the wrongs and and make things more equal, of course, the people who are going to be most offended and up in arms about that are the people who are were used to that privilege. Yeah, and and it's not that your power or your freedoms are being taken away; it's being shared more equally. Yeah, and that's going to feel like oppression until until at some point in the future you get used to that new standard and you know it's it's less of an issue but but yeah no it, it when you're in that position of privilege it's equality or or movement towards equality is going to feel like oppression it's going it's going to feel like your quote unquote god given rights are being taken away when uh, no actually it's not it's just being you know you're tr- giving other people those same rights right yeah, we're giving right. other people the same access to the privilege you alone have had. Right. Well, and 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 you know, I just watched the, a documentary recently called "Hail Satan." That was uh, such a good documentary. It, it was. It was, it was actually really, really interesting. I mean, I don't have any interest in being a Satanist. I don't really have any interest in belonging to many organizations at all these days because of religious trauma, but. Uh, but yeah, it's a, Satanists are, you know, a, a group of people who, who um, I, I, the way I understand their, you know, some of their goals and objectives is basically to call the religious hypocrisy uh, into light. You know, they're trying to shine a light on it and make it obvious, you know, that that Christianity is this favored religion in the United States. Um, and of course, some would some aren't afraid to admit that anymore because they they believe that we should be a theocracy. But um, yeah, there are a couple of <clears throat> there are a number of examples in, in the documentary about uh, you know some 
some city, you know, in one of the southern states wants to put a a big monument of the Ten Commandments up in front of their Capitol building, and and so the so the, the Satanists are like, no, that's awesome. We support that. We would also like to put up a statue of you know I can't remember who it was, it was Ball. It was something. No, close it, to but, that. but yeah, I can't remember the name of it. But some some you know Satan creature. And they're like, yeah, we we want to put up a, a statue of that right next to the Ten Commandments. That would be awesome. And of course, everyone's absolutely offended and appalled. And you're like, no, we can't do that, you know. And you know, there's so many news reports of people just, you know, just being absolutely disgusted at the thought of that. And yet, of course, we're not going to bat an eye at the Ten Commandments, which very clearly comes from the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, which most Christians like to ignore. But you know, it's 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 just it, it it was just it was hilarious but really troubling to see how hard it is for so many people to see the hypocrisy to see the favor favoritism the privilege the privilege uh being pointed at, at christianity and and you know going right back to this this term god given right you know uh um what was it just last week or just recently texas you know passed a law uh, oh my God, what the hell is up with Texas these days? You know, they have passed so many laws that have been so damaging towards, you know, human rights, but um, they, they passed a law that that said all donated in God, we trust signs uh, have to be displayed in schools now. Right. Yeah. And, and so you, you, you showed me the article about how somebody is, is using that against them by sending in, in God, we trust signs, Written in Ex- Arabic, except written in Arabic, um, and of course, any most people when they see Arabic, they think Islam, and then they think terrorists, and so it's it's hilarious to see these signs that say "In God We Trust" with the American flag, with the American flag, but it's written in in Arabic, and of course, you know the word for God in Arabic is Allah, and and again, most people are. Uh, so like that's a different God. That's a different God. Like or, Christian God. Yeah. So anyways, I, I, I hope, I hope those get spread throughout all of Texas and, and cause, cause I want to see those displayed. And, but anyways, just, it's just, it's, it's, there's so many, so many examples of, of just, you know, how, like you said, how powerful and what a position of power Christianity has been in for a long time. And one could theorize that a lot of the, the the horrible laws and anti-abortion and and all these these christian movements you know these really extremist movements one could theorize that a lot of these are the desperate attempts of old white people in in that are used to being in positions of power that are they're you know trying to cement that that position of of power for generations to come and and I guess we'll see what happens, but yeah. Well, I mean, with the recent Pew research coming out and what was that 2020, 2021, the numbers of people who claim no religion, yeah, not just don't go to church, but claim no religion. It's it spiked up to like 20 something percent. Yeah. It's like almost a quarter of the population. I want to yeah. say, but, but yeah, no, the, 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 cause every now and then you'll hear reports of what's the fastest growing religion. And 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 they're they're saying the fastest growing religion is the religion of none. Yeah. N O N E. Basically, people claiming no religion. That doesn't mean 
they're not spiritual. Yeah, not spiritual, or, or a lot of people still continue to believe in God, but but more and more people are doing it on their own terms, and they they feel less and less of a need to belong to organized religion as a way to express that. Well, and that's problematic because if you are belonging to, like, if you're doing spirituality your own way, again, that loss of power, it's all about losing that power over people instead of sharing power with, they want power over people. Mm -hmm. And I actually just had an interesting thought when you were talking about, you know, the in God we trust signs written in Arabic what if, like, I wonder if they would feel differently if you had a, as he calls them, sinner perpetrator coming to a priest talking about a terrorist act? Mm-hmm. Would they want that reported to authorities? Or would they say, you know, like if they if it was a terrorist act that was going to happen on American soil, but they felt like, you know, at least I've been forgiven, you know, I've 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 talked about it like some of these, you know, shootings that have happened, if one of those were to come and say, you know, this is what I'm planning to do, or this is what I've done. How would they feel about not reporting that? Yeah. Well, and in, in, in the day and age we live, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer to that would be, because if it's a pastor that is an extremist Republican, then, and they're talking about, going and, I don't know, bombing, you know, the democratic governor or somebody that they just don't like. They um, might feel like that's perfectly. Okay. Well, and, yeah. And, and just, and, and, and look at the way a lot of people refer to the January 6th storming of the Capitol, you know, uh, a lot of Republicans refer to that, those people as patriots. I've heard and, people call it a holy war that they're waging. Right. I yeah. mean, there, there's a whole host of terms that are being used. And then of course, uh, people on the other side, you know, referring to them as as insurgents, as terrorists, as domestic terrorists, and and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm wondering if it was like a terrorist act that was going to be committed against their values, and sure. they reported it to. Right. Uh, would, would they report it? Yeah. That would. How would they feel about that being? Mm-hmm. You know, if they could possibly be harmed, how would they feel about that being sure. kept secret? Sure. All right. Let's move to the next paragraph. That's one paragraph down. Luckily, it's not a very long article, but this is what it's like over our dinner table. Um, This is what we've been talking about. We just wanted to invite you into the conversation. There's a lot to discuss here, and there are a lot of movements to try to persuade Utah legislators, particularly because so many of the legislators are swayed by the church authorities, the LDS church authorities, to try to convince Utah legislators to make it mandatory for, you know, priests to report abuse whenever it happens um, to try to protect victims. And so there's all kinds of rallies. I will put links to those. Um, There have already been in-person rallies, but there's all kinds of like petitions and rallies and all kinds of things happening. I'll put those in here. We just want to start a discussion. We want to hear from you, your thoughts, even if they oppose ours. Um, please let us know what you think about this and anything that we might be missing because heaven knows we don't know it all. So we'll go ahead and read the second paragraph. In Utah, there's much talk about religious freedom, particularly when it's considered operational to win this or that battle in the culture conflicts. But when the sanctity, oh, even that word, the sanctity of the confessional is under attack, 
legislators and others go silent. Or worse, many rush to get in line to rob religion of its longstanding freedoms. Okay, what stands out to you? Obviously, there. Well, again, the assumption that these quote unquote longstanding freedoms have have always been a good positive thing, mm-hmm. and and again, turning a blind eye to the the fact that just because something has always been a certain way doesn't mean it was right or correct or okay. For hundreds of years, slaves were okay to to have in the United States. Uh, and we could even say thousands of years of slavery, which has existed throughout, you know, all of human civilization. And that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't mean it was all right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, as you emphasized on several of those words, you know, robbing religion as if it's this entity that needs to be protected versus again, um, the value of a human being. An yeah. individual. There's a there's a scripture in in Mormon uh, doctrine, you know, from from a, a book of scripture called Doctrine and Covenants, and and it, it, there's a, a number of scriptures in there that talks about the worth of souls in God's eyes, and and the the, the it's it's meant to emphasize that God really cares about the individual and that the worth of one soul is so immense and so, so incredible. And yet this completely flies in the face of that whole idea, because what we're, what he is saying, and this is what most religions would say is that we need to protect religion and not keep and keep it from being quote unquote robbed of its longstanding freedoms. Yeah. But somehow that somehow the the good name of the church mm-hmm. that comes up a lot the um image that the church is pro- projecting and i i say the church meaning not just the lds church but like in general this in general churches will say it's more important to protect our good name mm-hmm. it's more important to protect that people think that we're a good place to be right um because the ends justify the means if a few souls i always think of lord farquad in shrek where he's sitting up on his little horse and he's like, a few of you may die, but that is a price I'm willing to pay. <laughs> and it feels like that with religion to me, like that he's looking at these child victims and sometimes like the domestic victims and people that are being so physically and emotionally and mentally hurt and saying, you are a price I'm willing to pay for us to keep our good name. Mm-hmm. And it's so freaking abusive and narcissistic like there's just not a better word for that for them for this entity to believe like the way i look in public is more important than the actual harm that's happening to you so and then using that word sanctity right like yeah. just it, invokes that like untouchableness yeah untouchable Any, anytime we refer to something is is sacred we're basically saying it's untouchable. You're not allowed to criticize this. You're not allowed to attack this. You're not allowed to even talk about it. Yeah. Like it, that's such a thought stopping word right there. When the sanctity, like your brain gets stuck there. Like, oh, this is sacred. Like I'm treading on. And we've done this for centuries that if someone thinks something is sacred, that we're somehow not allowed to use critical thinking mm-hmm. or have any sort of conflict resolution around this. We're not allowed to say, yo, that hurts. Don't do that. All right. Next paragraph. 
short-sighted knee-jerk reactions by legislators running roughshod over religion and its God-given rights is fundamentally un-American. <laughs> oh, I cannot believe he pulled that card. Okay, keep going. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the great American experiment is the First Amendment designed to, per- to protect against the establishment of religion and the violation of its free exercise. Those legislators rushing to rob religion, there it is again, to rob religion of its sacred rights, reveal what they truly think about religious freedom. Implying again, religious freedom here, what he means is the ability for Christianity to maintain its its domination and its power uh, over over people. Uh, That's not religious freedom. Religious freedom is also the freedom from religion and to not be unfairly influenced and, and controlled by it. But it's amazing how a lot of these definitions change in order to support someone's agenda. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, I'm looking at the First Amendment because many of us in America are not good with our amendments. Mm -hmm. Like we don't really know what they say. Mm -hmm. But Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So they cannot make a law saying this is our religion, which we're actually hearing out in the public where people are like, you have to be Christian to be American. Mm -hmm. That goes against the First Amendment or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So kind of like going back to the Hail Satan video where they're like, that's great. I'm so glad that we are celebrating this religion. Can Like, let's celebrate ours, too. Let's put up this statue. Um, Yeah. And you know, talking about the abridgment of freedom of speech, which is actually what he's trying to do here is abridge the freedom of speech saying, you know, if we're running rough, rough shot over religion, if we are speaking out loud as legislators saying, this is not okay, we need to like take this back to the drawing boards, people are getting hurt. He's calling them un-American. Mm-hmm. He's saying it is un-American to speak freely about the harm that is happening in church and to even suggest that we do something different. And yeah, it says, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble or to petition the government for a redress of grievances, which is what people are doing here. We are asking the government to redress grievances that are happening inside of religion on a regular basis. I know at least a dozen people that have been sexually abused while in the church I know at least a dozen. I'm sure you know people too. Mm -hmm. I think every single person who's in high demand religion knows at least a handful of people who are sexually abused by parents and the pastor knew or heaven forbid by clergy themselves. I know people who were abused by clergy or by people who are in church positions of power over children and they were not protected and actually were shamed and considered partly responsible for what happened to them. So also I wanted to point out using words like rob, sacred, over and over again is actually a cult technique. According to Steve Hassan, repeating words over and over again, it buries them into your psyche and it, it actually kind of like breaks down your critical thinking defenses to use those words over and over again. Um, So I just wanted to point that out. When you start seeing the same word being used over and over again, 
it's on purpose and it is a cult tactic. Yeah. It's a thought control tactic. So, all right. Do you have anything you no. want to say about that? I have lots to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've already said some, so. Yeah. So the next paragraph, um, it is a grave mistake for the Utah legislature or any legislative body for that matter to, again, rob religion of its free exercise in the name of protecting victims of child abuse or any other crimes against the state. Like that was the, that was the sentence that, that I guess blew me away. Right. It is a grave mistake for basically anyone, any legislative body to rob religion of its free exercise in the name of protecting victims of child abuse. And, and this is where it's basically very clearly stated religion is more important than a human being. Yeah. An organization, an establishment is more important than an individual human being. Well, and these are the same people saying like, we cannot have abortion because human life is so important. And yet they're saying here, like, you better have that baby. But once the baby's out of the womb, someone can abuse that child freely. And we're not going to do anything about it. Like, we will ruin this kid's life. Like, let's just talk really quick about what happens to child abuse victims. What are some of the things that happen? Like, how does that change a, a child's life? Well, I mean, it has the potential <clears throat> just being abused, whether sexually or mentally or emotionally. Physically, even. Physically. None of that guarantees that you're screwed for life. And, but I think that's the fear sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. that if. If somebody goes through something abusive or traumatic, that they're ruined for life. So I, I think we need to keep that in mind, whether that was myself and I went through, you know, one or more things or my child and I'm their parent, you know, we, we really need to keep that in mind that none of that guarantees that they will be screwed up for life. And, 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 and I would say that's really important because we often are so hard on ourselves as parents for not being a, you know, being quote unquote, per perfect parents to our kids. And we often want to give them a perfect childhood and never have any pain or anything bad happen to them. And it's just not realistic. So, so I think that's one thing to keep in mind is that none of that guarantees that, that we will be screwed up for life. Having said that, it will definitely make things a little bit more challenging because now we've got things that we have to work through and that we have to heal from and, and address so that we can have uh, a healthy adulthood. Um, and, and so those things that we've been through, those things that we've suffered, those things that we've experienced will definitely make things uh, uh, difficult. Um, and so your, your question is, what are those things yeah, specifically? Like, what does that look like? Because I think a lot of the ways that child abuse victims deal with their abuse, if they don't have, you know, some sort of therapist or like advocate helping them work through their emotions and their trauma, we turn to numbing mechanisms mm -hmm. or to like coping mechanisms. And often those are things that are deeply shamed inside of religious communities. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm like, I just wanted to talk about what some of those might look like. Well, I guess, um, I think, uh, at a, at the most fundamental level, the, the, the unfortunate consequence of any abuse, uh, is a lack of trust. 
Yeah. And because it, it, it affects their attachment towards those people, adults that they thought they could trust that they thought would keep them safe and protected. And so that's probably the, the, the biggest consequence, consequence, the biggest negative, uh, whatever the word is, the, the, that that's probably the the biggest harm that mm-hmm. that happens to to a child um, when they are the victim of abuse. It, it it affects their ability to trust. Yeah, and so then that will affect them for the rest of their lives potentially, right? Um, whether that's you know trusting another uh, person, you know, to have a healthy you know romantic relationship with someone or just a trusting people in general, that, that, that's, that's a fundamental aspect of getting along as, as a society is, is can we at least on a very basic level, trust other people and trust that they're not out to hurt and harm and take advantage of. Yeah. And then after that, yeah, then you've, you've got to, you've got to hopefully be able to heal and, and work through that so that we can, um, move forward with life. Otherwise we, we kind of become stuck in a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we've talked all about numbing behaviors and, you know, some of those, if, if that's something that you turn to, if you're listening to this and, and you're realizing like, I, I struggle to trust people or, you know, I, I often don't feel safe in my body. And so I have a tendency to numb. I've done a podcast episode on numbing behaviors and why we turn to those just to understand that you're not doing anything wrong, that your body is actually trying to protect itself from the pain. And the way it's done that is through numbing and coping. Um, and yeah. that you don't have to do that forever. No, no. I mean, we're not meant to numb, you know, forever. We are meant to numb and, you know, escape, you know, from time to time. We all do that, you know, but yeah, to your point, it's, it's very normal, but when we do numb to an unhealthy level, then there's deeper pains and fears and, and emotional baggage that we need to sort through and, and work through so that we're not coping, you know, to an unhealthy level. Yeah. Agree. All right. So we'll go to the next sentence. He says this fundamental right is precisely why the free exercise clause of the first amendment exists at all. Very little. Well, and notice he's so focused on the free exercise clause. I just read the whole first amendment addressing the government for grievances. Mm -hmm. It's also covered in the first amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, the exercise to be free, like free exercise, like you said, means freedom from religion as well. So, you know, him saying that the free exercise and what they mean by that is the ability to do whatever they want mm-hmm. under the religious umbrella. That That's something I feel like we don't understand in our country sometimes is if my rights harm you, like if me expressing myself harms you, not okay. It's not okay. So he says very little could be more important under the first amendment than protecting the right of confessional confidentiality, which has nothing to do. I mean, there's nothing in there about 
confessional confidentiality. But again, he is hoping that most people don't actually know what the First Amendment says. Right. They just know that the First Amendment is where freedom of religion is. And many of us don't understand that freedom of religion is also freedom from religion and freedom from religious harm. Um, And it's that separation of church and state that the government can't mandate that you're part of a religion. Um, But he says very little could be more important. Again, such an extreme statement. Such as abused children and protecting abusers. None of that is more important than protecting the right of confessional confidentiality, which isn't even a right. Yeah. All right. So moving on. As legislators rush to, again, rob religion of its God-given rights, God-given rights, again, do you hear the repetition? This is cult language, which should be protected under the First Amendment, believing they are heroically, and notice he keeps saying the First Amendment, but doesn't ever ever actually quote what the First Amendment says. He just throws it out there, believing they are heroically rescuing victims. Look at that. He doesn't doesn't even believe them. He yeah. And 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 that's that's usually the tack, you know, that most abusers and organizations will take is to cast doubt on the victim and what they're saying and what they're claiming. Well, in the LDS church, they talk about how in the latter days or in the last days, they people will call good evil and evil good. He's doing that right here. He says when legislators rush to rob religion, notice how he's using such visual language. Um, believing they are heroically rescuing victims, especially child abuse victims. They are, in fact, ignorantly doing just the opposite. Like, if you make priests mandatorily report, you're doing the opposite of protecting child abuse victims. You're rescuing no one. Like, he's minimizing what these people want to do. He's, like, just... By minimizing it, he's he's taking the conversation and like brushing it under the rug. Like this isn't even worth the conversation because you're just ignorantly like that word is so specific, ignorantly doing just the opposite. And it is. Ugh. Well, and, and again, you know, when I read that part to you, you're like, how? What? Where's the evidence for that? Yeah. And and of course, here's where he tries to support that in the next paragraph. Yeah. If the Utah legislature requires clergy to violate the sanctity, so violate the sanctity. He's making them the victim, violate, right. rob, uh, like he's using victim language for the church right. and minimizing language for the victims throughout this entire article. If the Utah legislature requires clergy to violate the sanctity of the confessional by reporting information about child abuse crimes obtained in the confessional, all it's doing is guaranteeing in the future that sinners slash perpetrators will not confess their sins slash crimes, cutting off any opportunity for the clergy to influence the sinner slash perpetrator to self-report their crimes to government authorities as part of their repentance process required by some religions. So again, there's there's a a number of assumptions being made here. Number one, that the clergy are going to somehow be able to convince the sinner slash perpetrator to self-report. I don't know what the statistics are, but my guess is most people aren't going to self-report. And I would argue there's probably very little encouragement to do so because it's going to frown poorly 
on the church and the organization itself. Yeah. So there's a 1992 study by Kilpatrick, Edmonds, and Seymour that estimated only 12% of rapes are reported, and that includes child victims. If they're over the age of 12, that rises to 32%. But when we include child rape victims, 12%. And I don't think those numbers have probably changed much in the last 30 years. And that, and, and that number could be, you know, much lower for all we know. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Well, and even like, so I was looking on City of Rifle, Colorado, where we had a yeah. car breakdown one time. They have myths and facts about sex offenders. And they were finding that like 75% of people who are abused as children, like they had, where was it? There was a study that was done. They had 116 children who they knew had been abused. And as they were asking them questions, 75% of them denied being abused the first time. Mm -hmm. So most abuse victims will say that they weren't abused because for all kinds of reasons, they're afraid of their abuser. If their abuser is their parent, which like most people are are abused by people that that they they know. Yeah. Yeah. And so if they're being abused by a parent, Many times, like our fear as a child is like, I have to have my needs taken care of. And if my parent gets taken away, who's going to feed me? Who's going to shelter me? Like, am I going to be able to survive? I know I can survive sex abuse, but what if I can't survive my parent being taken away? So sometimes they won't report sex abuse or it's been happening for so long. They think it's normal. And or if they report, you know, they'll they'll have to suffer the consequences, you know, if if they're not taken away. Yeah. Which means further beatings and abuse and neglect. Yeah. It said in in the Gunderson National Child Protection Training Center um training that I was watching for the Lutheran Church. They did this training for the Lutheran Church and they did a whole article about it. Um they found that most, if not all victims believe they are at least partly to blame because they didn't stop it. Even in cases of abuse by clergy and other church leaders who may invoke God to justify their actions. Like the church leader might say, God made me this way, or God wants this, which we saw with Joseph Smith. Um, So they don't report because of the fear of the unknown, like what's going to happen, but also they might feel partly responsible. Right. It's, and the LDS church has several talks where they talk about how you could possibly be partly responsible for your own sexual abuse. Um, but again, he, he, he makes a statement, you know, that if, if, if clergy are required to report what they hear in the, in the confessional, all it is doing is guaranteeing in the future that sinners and perpetrators will not confess their sins and crimes. So again, he's, he's throwing out these quote unquote guarantees, these, these statements of fact, which are not based on anything tangible. And I think it's pretty clear that these things aren't self-reported to, to begin with for the most part. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. He's, he's pulling a lot of, a lot of stats and words out of thin air. And in my opinion, yeah, well, and you know, they give steps to actually protect kids at church. And one of the main steps they said was 
right here. Trying to change an abuser or confronting him about abuse will put the victim in danger. So don't do it. This is coming from, um, you know, the, the center, the national child protection training center. Um, so they're saying like, and they also tell clergy to stay within your field of expertise, which for the LDS church, there is no field of expertise aside from dentistry or plumbing or whatever, going to the one day training with your stake president as a bishop and your once a month check-in does not count as clergy training. You are trained as a dentist, not as a therapist, not as, um, not even as a spiritual leader, you're mm -hmm. not trained. Um, but it says trained pastors can offer spiritual guidance. Notice he says trained pastors can do that, but not medical or mental health advice. And so he says, no matter what, you should always refer people who are admitting abuse. And this was about the domestic violence piece to a mental health professional. And if child abuse is happening, you should always call the authorities. All right, so in the next paragraph, how does it help child abuse victims or the general welfare of society when the clergy are forced to violate the confidentiality of the confessional. Such a situation places clergy in the predicament of either refusing to report, accepting the pain of incarceration and or fines, or out of fairness, leaving the clergy no choice but to preemptively warn repenting sinners their confession of abuse crimes require clergy reporting. What an absolute tragedy for all involved, especially victims of child abuse. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't see anywhere in that paragraph where he was highlighting why this was so horrible for the victim. Yeah. There's nothing in here. Everything is pointing towards the sinner slash perpetrator. Per, per, perpetrator. Yeah. No, I mean, because earlier he's talking about like, oh, you're trying to protect child abuse victims and you're actually not. You're making it worse. And then he goes down and he's like, you know, he's actually producing like some false dichotomies here. Saying like, well, the so so either the clergy is in the predicament of not reporting, which means he'll get in trouble. Yeah, like there'll, there'll be yeah there'll be an incarceration or fines. So either he breaks the law. Let's call it what it is. Right. Either the clergy would break the law and become complicit right in the abuse of this child abuse victim because the perpetrator has now told them, and they're complicit already. Honestly, well, it's just like any other crime, you know if. If your friend murders someone and you know about it, you're complicit by not reporting it. Yeah. So it's it's really no different. And I'm pretty sure most people would agree, hey, you shouldn't just remain silent on this, you know, and let them get away with the crime. So so again, he's he's trying to he's trying to paint a situation where the poor clergy is put in this uncomfortable situation. And and the clergy is directly related to the church or the religion again, or out of fairness, leaving the clergy no choice but to preemptively warn repentant repenting sinners, their confession of abuse crimes requires clergy report. So, I'm sorry that 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 sentence doesn't even make any sense to me. It doesn't. Well, and you're a mandatory reporter. Don't you have to tell people like yeah. if you tell me about like serious abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, domestic violence, I'm going to have to report it. Mm -hmm. Does that stop people from talking about their painful past or, no. you know, no. 
I mean, well, I mean, I would assume it does for some people. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's still talked about sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. If the penitent are bringing up things in the room with the bishop or the priest or the pastor or whatever, right? If they're bringing up abuse and they know that they may have to be accountable for their crimes, they may have to, you know, be incarcerated or uh, separated from their kids for a time. Are are they are they really penitent if they're just wanting to tell someone so that someone can be like you know? Well, I thought don't. that I thought that was the whole point of the repentance process, and 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 uh, you know, like when someone is repentant, they need to be willing to pay the price, whatever that may be. Yeah, like part of the repentance process is making amends, right? And if you're abusing your child or you're abusing a child in the ward or the congregation, part of making amends is getting the heck out of their life mm -hmm. so that they can heal because they can't heal when you're right there, right? Like, like moving, removing yourself from their presence. If you can't stop abusing them, getting out of there, getting yourself help for whatever mental or emotional things are happening that are causing you to lash out or to abuse someone sexually or physically or mentally or emotionally, it, it sounds like they're not even trying to protect the repentance process. They're trying to protect the ability for perpetrators to be able to say, I'm abusing someone and for the clergy to just be like, okay, well, don't take the sacrament for a couple of weeks. Um, okay, like, you know, in the Catholic church, say a couple of Hail Marys. Um, donate a certain amount to the church that happens in some congregations and then, and you're good. And so they get to keep the shame that they're feeling secret and silent to a certain extent, because they know that there is no real consequence. They get to feel good about themselves again, and they get to continue the abuse without any real consequences. Well, and the thing about shame, you know, I, I think you probably talked about this a lot in your podcast, but shame just continues to grow when it remains a secret and, you know, not talked about. So, so shame will actually worsen the less it's talked about, the less it's actually confronted and, um, and dealt with. So, so the, 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 this is actually from a psychological perspective, this is actually just making the situation worse. Yeah. It's not helping. We have to, and, and I think most religions would agree the repentance process requires us to own what we've done and what's happened uh, in order to heal and to move forward. We can't keep it a secret and expect to grow. I, I work with a lot of people with addictions and it's the exact same thing. You have to come forward with it. You have to own it. That's why recovery groups are so popular because we're in a group setting with other people who struggle and we're admitting that we're all struggling and that we're, we're having a hard time with whatever it is we're trying to overcome. Yeah. Well, and I think some people would say, well, they're not keeping it secret and silent anymore because they're telling a clergy member but if the clergy member is then saying, like, don't tell anyone about this mm -hmm. and encouraging the victims, even like I have so many clients that have said, you know, I was abused by my husband. I went to my ecclesiastical leader and they just said, you know what? 
just try harder to keep him happy. It's usually a wife being abused by a husband. Just try harder to keep him happy. Um, you know, you don't want, or a child abused by a parent, you don't want to smear their good name. Um, you don't want to be the one responsible for putting your dad in jail. There's a lot of like keeping victims silent. There have been tales of like non-disclosure agreements for settlements with some of the sex abuse happening in the LDS church. And, you know, so much of it is hearsay because of, you know, the supposed NDAs and stuff like so even when we're confessing to clergy, if clergy has a really real investment in protecting the good name of the church, there's still that we're just going to keep it quiet. And this is just between you and me. So now instead of it being a secret of one, it's now a secret of two. And I would say that confessing to clergy doesn't really lift that shame, especially if they're not encouraging you to then go actually seek help go actually make amends, go actually do something, you know, report yourself to the police or I'm, you know, or I'm going to report you. They, they do actually encourage people to go report themselves to the police sometimes, but so many abusers do not report themselves to the police. Right. But again, the, the whole focus of this paragraph is on the clergy and how it puts them in an awkward situation and they either have to keep it a secret or they warn the person that they have to re report it and and then that whole that last sentence what an absolute tragedy for all involved you didn't once mention the victim you didn't once mention the the person who's being abused um it just, oh my gosh yeah, yeah his whole focus is on on religion and church and clergy well and again i mean statistically speaking 93 percent mm -hmm. of child abusers don't report are religious mm -hmm. and like consider themselves religious church going folks and they choose religion on purpose because of this exact thing that he's talking about because they can remain silent they're not telling the rest of the congregation that makes children much more accessible to them the people I mean, we have instances of people from the congregation actually going to bat for the abuser and saying what good people they are, what good church-going people, how much they serve the congregation, and leaving victims high and dry mm -hmm. because of this behavior. He says it's an absolute tragedy for all involved. I actually think the only person this is a tragedy for is for the good name of the church and maybe the perpetrator. Right. I think victims would be much more protected and future victims would be much more protected if we are openly talking about these things. And if we know that, you know, if we confess things, that the, the appropriate actions are going to be taken. Right. Yeah. There's very little that could be worse for religion. Again, it's always about religion and what is good for religion. There's very little that could be worse for religion than forcing clergy to violate the sanctity of the confessional confidentiality. Notice that is not about victims at all. It has all. nothing to do with victims. It's all about what's good for religion. And again, we're using those key words of sanctity and con confessional confidentiality. For at least one major religion, the confessional is a sacrosanct saving sacrament to be protected even under the pain of clergy death. For others, the confessional is critical 
for full repentance necessary for exaltation. For many religions, these are of the highest stakes not to be considered cavalierly. Okay, so here's the thing. He's making it sound like if we make clergy mandatory reporters, that they are endangering the ability for people to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. But it's only from the lens of the perpetrator. Who is there making sure that victims feel safe at church, Mm -hmm. feel like God is a safe person? Like, you know, so often he talks about like, if we know and then we report it's worse for victims, actually, no, it's not. Whenever you have a parent that's abusing you and you know they haven't told anyone, your anger is just towards your parent. Maybe the parent that's enabling it as well. But it's it's a little easier for you to say, like, I had sucky family, right? Like, I got a crappy draw with family. But then... Imagine the additional trauma that happens when you know that your parent told a clergy, like in the AP News article, and the clergy did nothing. In fact, was told by higher ups to do nothing. And then that abuse continued for seven years and then involved your other sibling. Now you're not just mad at your dad or your mom for you know being complicit. Now you're mad at an entire organization that's supposed to represent God. Um and I think it just compounds the trauma. Right. And and again, it goes back to the whole secrecy and silence thing. The 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 abuser um, keeping everything secret and silent isn't healing, isn't progressing. And the victim definitely isn't when they're forced to to stuff it down and to, to keep silent about it. There's no way to heal from that. It's like, I don't know, it's like you're getting... I don't know, I guess cancer or a tumor or something in your body. And it has to be opened up. It has to be operated on. It has to be acknowledged. You can't just ignore it and turn a blind eye to it and expect it to heal. And do 10 Hail Marys and be like, it's going to go away. Right. And so, so, but again, this, this whole paragraph again is about religion being more important than the individual and the victim, especially this sentence for others. The confessional is critical for full repentance necessary for exaltation. Great. If you believe that someone has to go through repentance for exaltation, that's awesome. But at the end of the day, that is a religious belief. It is not some eternal truth that all of us believe and abide by. And if we're going to actually have a healthy society, it can't be based on different religious beliefs and and, and what they believe at the end of the day. And just because that's your belief does not mean that everyone else has to abide by that, including victims of of the abuse that your members are, are, you know, committing. Yeah. Well, and even if we go back to what you were saying before, if they do believe that full repentance is necessary for exaltation, part of full repentance is making amends. You have to admit it. Like, you have to admit it. It can't be secret. You have to make amends. You have to, you know, make reparations however you can. And if you're allowed to just continue to abuse someone, how in the world is that even considered repentance? Right. How? It's not. It's a half-assed repentance. It's cheap forgiveness, as we've been learning about. Yeah. Yeah. That's not even real forgiveness. Oh, so let's see him. 
Let's see how he explains to us how this is going to benefit child abuse victims. Okay. Victims, especially child abuse victims, are better off if sinners slash perpetrators are able to confess their sins slash crimes. I hate how he keeps doing this. Mm-hmm. Sins and crimes. It, it's almost like he's making it seem like all sins and all crimes are the same and like trying to play to that empathy. But victims are better off if sinners perpetrators are able to confess their sins crimes to clergy under confessional confidentiality. He doesn't say why. Okay. There's a greater chance under clergy influence. Man, he thinks they have some special powers. There's a greater chance under clergy influence that the sinner perpetrator will not only self-report crimes, but child abuse victims will receive the necessary intervention sooner to rescue them from further harm and help them more quickly recover from being violated. And I call BS. I call absolute BS because if a perpetrator is able to self-report crimes to someone they know is not going to report them. It's not going to get better. It does not get better. In fact, they're emboldened a lot of the time to continue to harm and they don't get the help they need because this guy, this clergy influence, he thinks he has magical powers to heal this perpetrator. And no one, no one is giving the victims the mental health services, the medical services, the emotional services that they need to heal because we can't openly like we can't bring in an outside therapist, heaven forbid, for this victim because they are mandatory reporters. So victims have to go without services and they're just relying on their perpetrator getting magically better with only the help of the clergy. And I think that that is seriously overextending. Well, and again, none of this is based on any factual data. No. He's, 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 he's shooting from the hip here and and but he it, because he says it and he's this experienced wise old man then more people are likely to believe it and accept it and of course confirmation bias it 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 plays into what i want to be true which is my religion is is the one and only true religion and therefore above these types of things yeah yeah last paragraph utah legislature blah. Utah legislators should carefully consider before rushing to judgment whether they are actually helping or hurting child abuse victims by forcing clergy to report crimes they were made aware of during the confessional. From my many years of experience as a clergyman, I think that's reaching. AKA, I'm wiser than you. Yeah. Receiving hundreds of confessions a.k.a. I'm guilty of being complicit in child abuse is what I'm hearing there. (laughs) I am more than convinced that religion's God-given right, you hear it again, to the protected confessional is better for all concerned, especially, especially. Especially child abuse victims, which, of course, was 2% of this article. The only reference of these victims is he doesn't say anything about them. Everything is about the protection of the church and the clergy. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, and he's coming at it from the perspective of being a clergyman. He's looking at it of how will this affect me? Mm-hmm. Me, who probably heard confessions of child abuse and kept them to myself. Me, who was complicit. Me, who called that church hotline and was told not to say anything. Me who 
probably feels kind of guilty about that. Knowing that people continue to be abused, how does how can I be absolved is what I'm hearing. And I'm hearing zero empathy for child abuse victims. I'm not hearing like he's talking about being in confessionals with perpetrators. And I think there's a place for us to have empathy for perpetrators and to get them actual help, not magical Jesus help. Like there's a place for that with mental health services. Like how do we get them actual correctional help for whatever's going on underneath this without believing like if I just pray enough, if I go to the temple enough, if I, you know, take the sacrament enough that I'm going to be absolved and I'm going to be magically changed so that I don't hurt people. Um, I, I think this has some serious grandiosity. I think he believes that clergy somehow have magical powers to change perpetrators more than mental health professionals or actual, like the actual governmental system, the correctional system. I think there's a lot of entitlement here. We keep hearing about what religion is owed, what their God-given rights are, their God-given freedoms. Um, I think there is a lot of um, lack of empathy here. And for me, the way that the church's highest officials and now this guy have been talking about this issue, for me, just embodies organizational narcissism, which is another form of abuse. So now we're layering child sexual abuse with this narcissistic abuse coming from an organization that is more worried about protecting their public persona yeah. than they are about protecting victims. And it's disgusting. It really is. It makes me angry. I felt really angry over the course of this past month, I think, just because, yeah, I'm out of the organization, but knowing that there are organizations, not just the LDS church, but knowing that there are the Southern Baptist congregation just had this issue, the Catholic church has had this issue, knowing there are congregations that are seeking this religious privilege to continue to shelter perpetrators and continue to create generational trauma and our society just fires me up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, to end this, I kind of, I wanted to see what their suggestions were for making, like, what what are we asking for? Because a lot of people um, in social media have often said, like, well, the church isn't perfect. The people aren't perfect. And they use that argument. And I've been coming back with, no one is asking for perfection. That's a straw man argument. We are not asking for perfection. We are asking for accountability. And I wanted to end this with, how could churches be accountable? Because I've even encountered a couple of people that are like, well, what could we do? It's it's so unknown. How How could we be accountable? And so... This is coming again from Victor Veith, the executive director emeritus of Gunderson National Child Protection Training Center. There are actually seven really quick and easy things that religions could do to protect victims. And one of them is no one-to-one contact between children and adults. And yet we have Sam Young, who got excommunicated from the LDS Church for suggesting that, right? No one-to-one interviews with bishops and children. 
And the second one was thoroughly screening all potential workers and volunteers. The Boy Scouts started doing that and it's helped quite a bit, but the LDS Church says they don't have enough resources. With their $100 billion plus, they don't have enough resources to thoroughly screen their church members before they have volunteer positions. Number three, don't hesitate to release any worker that breaks your policy and call the police if any offense occurs. But because there's so much organizational shame and they're trying to protect the good name of the church, we're not calling the police and we're not releasing people. We're not even telling congregation members when there's a sex offender in our midst, which is allowing multiple other people to become victims. Um, Providing personal safety training for kids, parents, workers, and volunteers, like helping kids know what is not okay. Because when you're in an insular culture, like we were in Mormonism, you don't know what's okay and what's not okay. And you're just taught to obey authority. And being able to say like, these things are not okay. People are not allowed to touch you in these places. You're allowed to say no. You're allowed to have personal space and that it's okay to continue to tell people until you find someone who will take you seriously. Um, and then the fifth one was helping victims who've already been abused get the mental, emotional, and physical care they need to recover. Again, as long as we're worried about the good name of the church, we're not going to help people get the name or get the help that they deserve because we don't want word getting out there that people are getting hurt in our organizations. And I love how he says, listen to their accounts and believe them and do not require them to forgive their abusers. I mean, these are simple, simple things. Number six, stay within your field of expertise. He's talking to pastors here. And he says, trained pastors can offer spiritual guidance, but not medical or mental health advice. And I would say in the LDS church, I mean, they typically don't call mental health professionals to be bishops. You should not be giving any sort of mental health advice, and you don't have a degree as a clergyman, so really you shouldn't be giving any sort of spiritual wellness advice either, I don't think. Well, spiritual spirituality, I think, is often seen as a gift or some sort of blessing from God or, you know, from angels and whatnot, and so I think it's easier to claim that someone has the ability or the authority to give that advice when again well and 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 again if you think about religion's goal and aim it's to control and to keep people online so most religions aren't going to emphasize the the individual aspect of spirituality they'll they'll touch on it a little bit but at the end of the day, you're supposed to stay in line. You're supposed to believe the way you're told to believe. And so it, really anyone can fulfill that position if they think about it. They don't see it as a professional calling or position. Yeah. And therefore, why would there be any specific training for that? Yeah. Yeah. You're taught to listen to outside authority. And you're taught that if you have, you know, any subconscious beliefs that come to the surface while you're counseling somebody that that's the Holy ghost, mm -hmm. even if it's racist or misogynist or whatever. All right. Number seven, always refer 
They say trying to change an abuser or confronting him about abuse will put the victim in danger, so don't do it. If an abuser confesses to a pastor, the pastor may offer him, and this is what I like, the pastor may offer him absolution of his sins, but always refer them to a mental health professional with expertise in the field, and if it's child abuse related, always call the authorities. It's really not that hard. Like you, it's not like we can have confessional and talk about forgiveness of sins on a spiritual level and hold people accountable for what they do. It's not either or, it's both. It should be both. Right. So is there anything else you would tell people who are listening that has come up for you? No, I think you've you've covered a, a lot of it there. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I'm really interested in having discussions with you about this. What did you pick up as you were reading this article? What did this discussion today make you think of? Do you agree or disagree? If so, what did you disagree about? I would love to hear from you. Um, I know this was a pretty, I was pretty hard with my words today because I am feeling, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling very protective of people in these organizations, not just the LDS church, but in fundamentalist organizations where perpetrators and the church is being protected and people who are vulnerable are not being protected. So I would love to hear from you. I want to hear what you think. I want to hear what's coming up for you. If you're from a different religious background than the LDS church, I know some of you have brought up Hillsong and some of the things going up with going on with Hillsong. And I've been reading and studying about that. Um, do you have examples from your own religious past where some of these things have happened? How did that influence you? What did you think about that? What would you like to see happen? Um, we'll be talking about that on the Emancipate Yourself group. And if you would like to meet Kevin and I in person, we are going to be in Salt Lake for Mormon Palooza. I will be running a workshop during the fireside portion of it. It'll be a 50-minute workshop on healing religious trauma. We're going to be doing some hands-on experiences. But if you would like to meet Kevin and I, we will be there October 1st. You can go to the website that I've got in the show notes. Click on it. You can go and get your tickets. And we will see you at Mormon Palooza on October 1st. Thank you all for all of the input that you have already given me on this topic. And for the discussions that we're starting, I think... Not sweeping this under the rug is one of the best things we can do. Continuing to talk about it, continuing to make these secrets and these things that are supposed to be silent, according to the church, more visible and more vocal, makes it easier to talk about and makes it more likely that we will see some change that makes church safer for those who want to go or who have to go because their kids and their parents go. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kevin, for yeah. having this discussion with me. And I look forward to hearing your takeaways and what you think about this. We'll see you next Sunday.